0: Forever! Dog! Hey y'all, my name is Alex Berg, and welcome to the LGBTQ Nation podcast. LGBTQ Nation is the world's leader in LGBTQ news and commentary, and every week we focus on major topics affecting the queer community and speak with the nation's brightest thinkers, journalists, activists, politicians, and more. This week, the Vatican released a document about its position on blessing same-sex unions— In what may not be that much of a surprise, the church said that while it welcomes parishioners in same-sex relationships, it, quote, does not and cannot bless sin. Now, last year, Pope Francis was cautiously praised for saying that gay people deserve to have families and ought to have civil unions. This latest statement from the church is, quite frankly, a pretty infuriating slap in the face. But beyond that, it got me thinking about how fragile our rights are, especially in the case of the church and when we're relying on an institution with whims that change that we really can't rely on institutions to do right by us, and that this is a crucial reminder of how important it is to have our equality enshrined in law. Today's guest is so timely for what I was thinking about. Jim Obergefell was the lead plaintiff in the Supreme Court case that made marriage equality the law of the land in the US. And now he's joined Family Equality to fight for LGBTQ people to build the families that we want. This week, he'll be joining me to discuss the latest battles for queer and trans people who want to adopt and foster children, and why we need protections further codified to ensure that we can do so. But first, as usual, there was a lot of news this week. Devin Norrell, a writer and trans advocate, is joining me to break down the garbage fire that happened. And okay, there was actually some good news too. With that, joining me now to talk about some of the biggest LGBTQ stories this week is Devin Norrell. Welcome.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
0: I'm excited to have you too. I say that kind of tentatively just because I'm almost laughing, just because everything is almost terrible in the news cycle. (laughs) There are glimmers of hope, there are glimmers of goodness, which we will get to. But we have to start off by talking about just the story that is dominating headlines everywhere. Another week, another torrent of anti trans legislation and stories. One story that caught my eye in particular this week is that there are Democrats who are supporting anti-trans measures. John Gallagher wrote about this on LGBTQ Nation. He wrote that Senator Joe Manchin supported an anti-trans amendment added to the COVID relief bill. South Carolina representative Cesar McKnight even wrote a measure that would ban doctors from giving gender-affirming care to kids. And eight Democrats in Mississippi voted to pass that state's anti-trans bill. What? gives?
1: I want just want to start by saying that I'm not surprised. Um, mm. <laughs> I, I'm i going to have a pretty radical answer to this in, or response in saying that Democrats are just liberal Republicans uh, and that not very much socialist or very left-leaning, I think, as many as the LGBTQ community or rather underserving communities have to be for their own survival. Um, and so I'm not surprised. What is so devastating about this is that it's in a covert relief bill that's supposed to stimulate the, the economy that has nothing to do with human rights <laughs> at all. You know, I, I assume that this will mostly be left up to um, Biden reversing or executing executive orders to reverse some of the Trump era policies, you know. And so I'm not really sure. Honestly, I'm, I'm completely flabbergasted that. This is happening, but not surprised, like I said, it's, especially with Mississippi. And it, it is shown among Trump supporters as well that this is such a low priority uh, issue. Why are we why are our lawmakers not just Republicans, but also these Democrats focusing so heavily on, on trans kids? And I think there's this misconception that we are essentially allowing trans kids to medically transition at the age of 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 without having any actual, actual idea or clue of what is going on, um, both in in terms of medically transitioning, but also in their own heads. None of these people seem to know trans kids personally, enough to empathize with them. But secondly, I have seen so many cases, and I, forget, I think it might have been in Texas, where a couple was fighting over custody for their child. The mom had custody over, I can't remember, remember if it was her, Daughter or son, um, I, I'm just going to say child for now. But anyway, the child had come out and said, "I am this person." Um, the dad wasn't happy about it. The mom wasn't going to do anything else um, in terms of you know medical transition, but just allow the, the child to take uh, hormone blockers, you know, the, the typical thing. And the adult, the man rather, was able to win custody because he spread misinformation, and maybe a lot of that does come from the, from the Trump era of. We shouldn't allow trans people in sports because um, they're much stronger. Whereas we know that scientifically speaking, that's not the truth. You know, um, the the attacks against trans girls rather than saying trans women, because a lot of these people that are being attacked are literally in high school and their blockers prevent them from the trans girls, at least prevent them from developing any muscular muscle that would give them an advantage over women or over cis girls, you know, over other women. Um, And so, I just think that there's just so much misinformation out there that's spreading and that is continuing to spread, unfortunately, because of these laws that are being passed. And so I'm not surprised, one, because a lot of Democrats are still right-leaning. <laughs> and so, and two, because of the misinformation that is out there. And by the passing of this, by contributing to or adding these things to the COVID relief bill, it's, it's just kind of exacerbating the situation or the the spread of this misinformation and this fake news, if I may. Um, I really wish that people would actually just take the time to read, do some research and um, I talk to them, if they have, I'm sure most of these people have kids. Talk to their kids, ask them if they know any if they have any friends that are trans. Kids have the information that we need in, in order to to learn about these issues that might be newer to us. It takes two seconds, you know? Wait, uh,
0: Devin Durell, are you um suggesting that people should actually just maybe talk to trans kids about their experiences and listen yeah. to them?
1: I mean, I mean what has a, anybody what a actually radical concept. Yeah. Right, but has anyone actually have any of these lawmakers actually is a thing. It's like so many things it's, 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 it's relatable almost in a way to uh, so many of the stimulus packages that have come out where uh, Mitch McConnell has said, well, we don't want to give them too much money because they're going to waste the money. Whereas people are begging for money to pay their rent. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yes, my point is it takes two seconds Obviously not two seconds, but it takes a conversation to just sit with a child or your child and their friend who might happen to be trans and ask questions and learn about them and emphasis and learn empathy for said person.
0: Yeah, I mean, to your point, one of the things you said is like none of this is surprising, but it is flabbergasting. And, you know, you mentioned two seconds. Well, it does actually only take like two seconds to go on to Google to dispel misinformation that's out there. It takes two seconds to go to Google to like do some research to find out what is actually going on and what's real information. And I feel like one of the reasons why Democrats are supporting this is because there is this kind of information gap for some people who maybe are newer to thinking about this issue, and then it can get really filled in by so much misinformation. And so it feels like, like, maybe... Democrats don't understand the issue or something, um, but also like it's so there's something just so wild to me about attaching it to a covid bill when it's like literally there is a pandemic, sir, for like Joe Manchin or someone to attack it. to This is about covid like this is such uh, this mm-hmm. has nothing to do with that. Nobody who is rationally thinking would think that this has anything to do with COVID or right. is going to help anyone like it's so far out there. But it worries me because it makes me think that these the campaigns around these bills are so convincing to people who just don't know about them. And then I feel like mm-hmm. also, you know, under the guise of protecting women, people feel like people who don't know anything and haven't done the research feel like they're doing something good to Mm -hmm. protect people when that is so not the case
1: it's saying that there was an issue when really there was a non-issue right you know i'm now i guess if we're shifting over more so to the to the trans or to the bills that are attacking trans athletes there wasn't an issue you know at all from what i recall and now it's almost like the bathroom bills it's like there really wasn't an issue but suddenly this manifested out of thin air (laughs) <laughs> and there's, there's actual scientific or, or statistical proof to, that shows that there wasn't an issue prior to this happening. And so why why are we suddenly shifting focus when we should be serving or, or helping these under, underserving communities? Right back to the COVID bill. Why are we attacking said communities and, instead of helping them live through this pandemic, especially since trans people uh, and LGBTQIA++ people are the most, I would say, underserved in terms of the uh, pandemic, in terms of COVID relief, are the most affected folks. Um, Disproportionately uh, not receiving vaccines uh, or disproportionately getting sick because they are frontline workers or essential workers in some way and are being exposed every day to different things but then are not being prioritized for said things like vaccines or are told to stay home because they're, they're younger. We're, whereas uh, we can't be at risk for so many different reasons for so many different illnesses and not including HIV. Even if I were to bring that up, it's like, that's just one of the things that we suffer through, right? That we, has been ignored <laughs> since the eighties. Um, but it's mind boggling. It's hurtful. You know, and in so many ways, as I'm reading some of these things, it's like I'm loosely paying attention to the news because I still want to be on top of it. But it's, it's so triggering and so painful to read um, and to know that a party that you voted in, again, for your own survival is now turning against you. I'm afraid what 2022 will look like, because I don't think that people will be as motivated for vote, to vote for this party because of these things. It's like, why did I vote for you just for you to turn against me? continue to make lgbt people especially trans people just kind of fall in this uh never-ending <laughs> the sinkholes that exist you know like we were just this precarious hole this precarious part of land we were just afloat and then boop, <laughs> you know it just completely opened up yeah I, i'm afraid to see what 2022 is going to look like especially among black and lgbtqia voters because yeah. of these things
0: yeah, um, it's interesting because Glad is tracking all the actions that the Biden-Harris administration is taking for LGBTQ people. They've delivered 24 executive actions so far. How would you like to see them respond to all of these anti-trans bills? Have there been any actions so far that jump out to you?
1: You know, there's a lot of things are focus on sports. And, but again, like uh, these things can trickle into so many other realms of life. For me, from day one, when Biden signed an executive order that essentially asked all federal institutions to recognize the Civil Rights Act as enacted in June 2020, like, what year is it? I mean, (laughs) I'm literally lost
0: somewhere in the time-space continuum because of the last four years and the pandemic. I mean, I'm just, you know, who knows?
1: Right. I'm I'm told it's 2021,
0: but Yeah. (laughs)
1: it's 1902 at this point but anyway um that to me is one of the most significant things that um obviously the appointments that he's made are great but that's Mm -hmm. to me one of the most significant things i mean that ruling in general is super significant because it's saying not only are we covering both gender and sexuality under this act that was in that was put into place almost what was that 1960s 50s almost 70 years ago now, Biden is saying, OK, we need to take this ruling and apply it to all federal institutions. So healthcare, Right. So that's reversing Trump's stance on uh, protections of healthcare and housing. Um, I think one of his appointees already mandated that the, they follow the policies that were put in or follow the Civil Rights Act within housing. I think I read that recently. I can't remember what. It, what the name of the appointee is in housing and healthcare, and hopefully soon to come in food security. And it would be nice if that was applied to institutions like welfare for the people that need it. And so to me, I think that's super important. I mean, in general, the ruling was, in, was crucial because it would have eventually, even under Trump, trickled down to all of these things without Biden. But because Biden is here and is saying that we need to implement this ASAP, I feel more comfortable knowing that now. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think that is, uh, oh, sorry, and education is the other thing that I missed. And again, if you're applying this within education, then at some point, these bills will have to go away
2: mm-hmm.
1: because they would be declared illegal based upon the Civil Act. I think if I remember correctly, I did read something where someone within the Biden administration mentioned that this is possibly illegal because yeah. of the civil rights act. Mm-hmm. Uh and so that's that's for me again like that executive order for me is where i'm kind of leaning and what i'm kind of focusing on because yeah. i think that can like do away with what's happening
0: yeah i mean the news cycle is rough for sure i really hear you on needing to keep some space and distance and you know why it's so upsetting one of the things that th- this all made me think about is just how We're we're on such a roller coaster in terms of we've seen these great strides for LGBTQ people and also invisibility. And then at the same time, um, you know, all of this really retrograde legislation. And Elliot Page recently opened up about identifying as trans is on the cover of Time magazine. And he in the story, he talked about finally feeling like himself and also some of those perils of visibility. Like one of the things he said that was that when he opened up about his story that he uh, expected he would get an outpouring of support. And then at the same time, an outpouring of harassment. Essentially, one of the things that I was struck by is that there was a scholar quoted in the story who talked about the visibility gap for trans men and trans masculine folk in Hollywood. I thought that that it, it was you know nice to see that covered in Time Magazine, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, um, I didn't get a chance to read uh, the entire article, but let me tell you, um, in terms of trying out for auditions myself right now in the acting world uh just to try out you know I cannot find and I'm looking for things that aren't necessarily geared towards trans people but there are so many different types of auditions for trans people and a I would say about 80% of these auditions are geared towards trans feminine folks which is great right obviously we want that but as a trans masculine person I'm just like okay When and where am I going to see a person like myself Um, outside of me just auditioning? What other opportunities are there for actors that have already made it, like say Brian Michael Smith, Leo Shang, who's in the L Word? Great that it's there's an uptick, but um, and also great, you know, obviously congratulations if you're listening to this, Elliot Page, (laughs) congratulations and and glad that we could have that so much more visibility there. But I think there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, I hope that. By coming out and you know something that stood out to me that i did read um from elliot's uh interview is i wanted to do something selfish which was to come out and i said to myself how is that selfish that you wanted to do something for yourself for the betterment of your mental health because you having anxiety both about coming out but also by not coming out you're having more anxiety by not coming out how does how is that selfish did something that made you feel better and it wasn't uh, uh, that didn't, like, take anyone down along with your coming out. You know, you just came out, you were yourself. Um, I hope that th- there's there's kind of, like, this air, I think, of responsibility for trans people who are in Hollywood and out. Um, and I can't say that I don't, I don't, I, I can say, rather, that I, that I hope Elliot speaks more openly about the trans issues, and I'm glad that he acknowledged his privilege in both being able to come out and and doing other things, but I think there still needs to be a greater discussion. And, and and maybe his coming out, maybe his coming out is the Laverne Cox for the trans masculine folks now, you know. And maybe this is the tipping point. You know, the t- Laverne was on the top right That was right? Laverne's that was cover, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And maybe this is the tipping point for the trans masculine movement. And so I would say the good is Elliot coming out and just being himself. 100%. The bad I felt from this, not necessarily bad, obviously, having top surgery and feeling more like yourself and in your body is excellent. My bad that I took from this interview was it would be great to have more trans generalists cover trans people because we didn't necessarily need to have that discussion. <laughs> I was like, great. There's so much, you know, what I from what I did read, there's so much great information here and, and he's being so vulnerable and, and whatnot. Why did we have to take it there? With what's going on right now, there could have been more focus there or, you know, what it's like to come out as a trans person as we're being attacked, etc. I honestly am just I'm very excited for Elliot. I'm very excited for trans masculine people in general. I think um, this will have a Caitlyn Jenner effect again. Um, And going back to some of the other things that we were discussing, it would have a Caitlyn Jenner effect because. Elliot Page is known to so many people and he's been in the business for so long. But again, I, I hope that this is, brings about visibility or rather brings about change in a way where it, it can lean on more people than just him.
0: Here, here. Well, Devin Norell, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can folks find your work?
1: Oh, my! I have a website now. So it's devinnorell.com. And my Instagram is Stereo Beyonce. I know you can't forget it. Probably not going to change it anytime soon. I hope
0: <laughs> you <laughs> Uh you should
1: not. I It's so good. But um yeah, that's 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 where I can be found and probably on a gender training somewhere on your Zoom coming soon. Excellent. We will look out for it Great. all. Thank you.
0: My next guest really needs no introduction. Jim Obergefell was the lead plaintiff in the Supreme Court case that made same-sex marriage the law of the land, and now he's joined the organization Family Equality to continue fighting for LGBTQ people. Welcome, Jim.
2: Thanks, Alex. It's great to be here.
0: It's great to get to chat with you, and I kind of just want to jump right in. How has your life changed since you won your Supreme Court case in 2015? How did you land at Family Equality?
2: Well, I think the short answer is my life changed Completely, you know, the past seven years, and I say seven, eight years from the time our case started in Ohio in 2013. You know, I left the corporate world. I became this household name and face related to marriage equality. I became a speaker. I launched a wine label. So my life has been completely different from what it had been before. And I found over the past several years, I started to feel like I needed to be more focused in my activism, in my advocacy. You know, I was doing everything on my own, just whatever interested me, what sounded fun. So in the midst of this pandemic, I thought, perfect time to find a job. So I started (laughs) (laughs) and I'm one of the lucky few that actually did find something during the pandemic. And family equality came up as an opportunity. And I thought, well, this is perfect. To me, it just felt like the perfect continuation of what I had started fighting for in our case, fighting for our families. So this was an easy decision for me to make. And it just feels really good to be fighting for our families.
0: That's so interesting. So when you say that you wanted to get more focused in your work, was it kind of like you were getting a lot of like speaking opportunities type of thing? And then, you know, you kind of decided to hone in on what is the next step for the work that you were doing?
2: Right. I was doing a lot of speaking and and that's still part of my life. I think that will be part of my life for good. Probably not as constant as it was for the first three to four years after the decision. But I realized, you know, if an organization said, hey, Jim, can you do something to help us? I was happy to do it. Mm -hmm. But I found personally, I needed a bit more structure in my life. And part of that is being dedicated and focused on one organization. So that was really a big part of it for me, finding more structure. But it was also important for me to find something that I could focus on and dedicate my efforts towards something that was really important. So family equality just met all of those needs.
0: Now, we're going to talk about um, all the issues that you're working on with family equality, but I think I would be remiss if I just glossed over the fact that you mentioned wine label. What is this (laughs) wine label? What are you doing with wine? I mean, to me, I'm like, that is the pandemic job.
2: Well, I have to say that has been a whole lot of fun. You know, I've always enjoyed wine. I've been a wine drinker. Never incredibly knowledgeable about mm-hmm. wine, but what year is it, 2021? Six years ago this month, I got a phone call out of the blue from a man named Matt Grove, who's now my business partner, and he had been in the wine business for a couple decades. And he was thinking about doing a wine to honor his aunt. And his favorite aunt worked for NBC in New York wow. in the 70s and she got tired of the limits on her opportunities huh. and on her pay. She ended up filing and leading the first major class action lawsuit wow. for gender pay, for gender pay opportunity in the workplace, and she won. So wow. she's deceased and he wanted to do a wine to honor her. But then our case hit the news and he realized his ex-wife and I had a friend in common. So he called me out of the blue and said, Jim, let's meet for dinner, I have some ideas. So we met um, for dinner in New York over a lot of wine
0: and talked. <laughs> as, <laughs> as one would expect, you know yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. You'd be surprised if I hadn't said that. Yeah. And we decided to launch Equality Vines that year, 2015, wow. and. We're the world's first cause-based wine label. So Mm. every wine we release is tied to an organization fighting for equality. So when we sell a bottle of that wine, we donate to that organization. We have wines that support LGBTQ plus organizations, women's rights
0: organizations,
2: immigrants' rights. And we're working on a line of wines for racial equality as well. So Mm. it's been a blast. It's been a whole lot of fun.
0: As if I needed any more encouragement to pour myself a glass of wine after a day of work. Um, now I know it's like, okay, this is being donated to a good cause. So um, that that is merging two passions of equality and wine. I, that is something that I can completely get behind.
2: Well, I love it. As as we like to say, drink wine and do good. Yes, and it's it's really been fun. We've you know supported some fantastic organizations and also just. Developed some beautiful labels and all of our labels have a story. And that's been really fun.
0: Well, one of the things that I mentioned at the beginning of the show is that this week, the Vatican said that the church cannot bless same sex unions, which to me just felt like, you know, another one of these reminders uh, that you can't just rely on these institutions to do the right thing. And I was wondering what your reaction was to that and then how how that ties into to the work that you're you're doing with family equality.
2: I was raised Catholic I gave that up a long time ago. So, when that news came out, of course, my initial reaction was, well, of course, that's their attitude. I wasn't expecting anything different. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that announcement changed nothing because it isn't like you can go to a Catholic church currently and get married if you're a same sex couple. And regardless of all of the kind of nice things the Pope has said about the LGBTQ community, over time, it was clear we are still not considered equal to straight people. So it didn't surprise me, but it angered me because I have dear friends who still are Catholic, who are LGBTQ+, and just knowing the harm that this statement and the church's attitude towards this community does to those people, as well as anyone who might be looking for a faith home, it's out of touch. I mean, Catholics in America are the majority support marriage equality. They support the LGBTQ plus community. So the church in Rome is just out of touch with reality. It's out of touch with the people in the pews.
0: I mean, that's such a good point. I think you you said it so diplomatically that the Pope has said some nice things. But, you know, saying nice things doesn't necessarily amount to actual systemic change.
2: Correct. And. You know, it's, it's just harmful and hurtful. And it really speaks to one of the biggest challenges that we have in our community. And it's something that with family equality, we continually work, work toward. And that's dealing with religious refusal. And I refuse to say religious freedom because what these organizations, what these people are demanding is not religious freedom. It's the right to discriminate against people who don't believe the way they do. That is not religious freedom. That's religious refusal. So, religion and religious refusal are at the heart of a lot of the issues we work toward. Case in point Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia. You know, that case was heard by the Supreme Court the day after the election. And it's a case where a taxpayer funded foster and adoption service provider in Philadelphia wants the legal right to refuse to work with the LGBTQ plus community. That's current LGBTQ plus parents, potential LGBTQ plus parents. And what about the LGBTQ plus kids who are in their care? I mean, 30% of the more than 400,000 kids in the child welfare system identify as LGBTQ plus. How is that agency treating those kids?
0: Yeah, that is such a good point. I mean, I feel like one of the things that always gets glossed over is actually the kids. I mean, whether we're talking about the kids in these agencies or we're talking about uh, trans kids who now are being targeted by all of this uh, anti-trans state legislation, I feel like we never actually get to talk that much about the children themselves. Right. And they're the ones who need all of us to be speaking out and
2: stepping up on their behalf. So that's one of the things that's really important to us at Family Equality is making sure those kids have a voice and we're their voice. We're out there saying, wait a minute, these kids, if they're in the child welfare system, they're counting on that agency to advocate for them, to do everything in that agency's ability to find them a loving home. And when that agency is going to say, well, we we refuse to even consider working with these potential parents who would provide a loving home, that is certainly not in the best interest of the kids.
0: Yeah, seriously. I mean, do you think that people are thinking about that? Like, I I feel like a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of focus on the couples, which is incredibly important, who are trying to adopt and foster these kids. But do you think that the public is understanding that, like, if they're treating LGBTQ adults this way, like, can you imagine the kids that are in the care?
2: Part of me thinks that's something that not many people or enough people really think about Mm. you know you're right it's it's easy to think about the fight or the challenges those potential parents are having but we have to always remember there are a lot of lgbtq plus kids in in the system who just want a home they want people to care for them and we should be fighting for them without hesitation and without stopping
0: yeah to your point earlier about how these are not religious freedom bills uh, one of the biggest things I think about with that word refusal is that you're refusing getting these kids into a home with loving parents. It is refu- what is freedom about that? I mean, there's nothing free about that. And, and to me, that is like the, one of the most upsetting things that I think about. You know, when I think of my own my own wife and, you know, eventually we want to have a kid. I think about all the other LGBTQ individuals I know who want to build their families. And it's like they're the most wonderful people who are so intentional about thinking about building their own families and there's just such a, a sadness there thinking that you know people can't build the families that they want in that way right it's
2: it's harmful to so many people and those kids and you know it's been proven that lgbtq plus people are much more likely to adopt those harder to place kids sibling groups kids with mental or physical challenges they are much more likely to adopt or to foster those kids. So those agencies are right from the top saying, "Ah, we don't care. And that's devastating.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things you mentioned is the Fulton versus Philadelphia case. I mean, is that typical of the kind of work that you're doing and the kind of discrimination that y'all are addressing at Family Equality? What kind of discrimination, lay it out for our listeners, what kind of discrimination are you seeing LGBTQ families facing today?
2: Well, definitely. Fulton is a perfect example of that. And that's, that illustrates the, the discrimination our community faces in adoption and service providers. But it also relates to the issues we have in surrogacy, in finding alternative reproductive technology providers who understand our community and are willing to work with us and to treat us equally and equitably. So those are issues, you know, those are not just attitudes but it's also laws and policies. You know, just last year, Family Equality was very involved in the state of New York in helping them pass new legislation. It was a surrogacy law and that's something that people don't realize, don't think about that people who want to do surrogacy or other types of alternative reproductive methods, they face challenges under the law in policies, and in person in those offices across the nation. So we work really hard on that. We're also very much involved in helping fight for the Every Child Deserves a Family Act, which would outlaw discrimination in the child welfare system, everything related to that. It would ban conversion therapy. So we're involved in that legislative effort. We're also working to help pass the Equality Act, which would update the 1964 Civil Rights Act to include sexual orientation and gender identity. So those are a lot of the things that we focus on, really all types of discrimination that we as LGBTQ plus families and kids in child welfare system might experience.
0: I just want to say it's so nice to be able to talk about proactive things that everyone is working on right now. Um, With the first act that you uh, talked about, at what stage is that in at this moment?
2: The Every Child Deserves a Family Act. Right now, the Equality Act has taken precedence. So that one's further along, you know, having been passed by the House. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it'll be introduced on the Senate floor tomorrow, sometime this week, if I recall that correctly. Every Child Deserves a Family Act has co-sponsors. It has support in the Mm -hmm. house. I don't know exactly what the status is and when that will be introduced. I think a decision was made, a strategic decision was made, let's focus on the Equality Act, Mm -hmm. then we can go to the Every Child Deserves a Family Act.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. It, I know that the Equality Act is facing a little bit of an uphill battle uh, in the Senate. So we'll see how things shake out. One thing that I that I wanted to ask you as well, like thinking about Fulton and, you know, when we might hear about this case, the Supreme Court has changed, uh, has evolved in a different direction um, since your yes. case. How are you feeling about the the Fulton case? How are you feeling about the Supreme Court now?
2: Well, I'd be lying if I said I were a big fan of the current makeup of the Supreme Court, you know, I do worry about our community. I worry about the civil rights of all marginalized communities under this the current makeup of the yeah. court. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it concerns me. Now, I will say I'm still stunned. You know, this is before Amy Coney Barrett joined the court, but I'm still stunned, happily so, that the Bostock decision came out mm-hmm. the way that it did. And the fact that it was such... A big majority on that decision. And that gives me hope. Mm, The fact mm -hmm. that that court, almost the same as it is today, could rule that sex discrimination includes discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. That was such a momentous ruling and has application in so many things. So that gives me some hope. Fulton, I think a lot of us think in a perfect world, we would win and those adoption and service providers would lose, but I think a lot of us have this feeling that could potentially be a narrow loss for us, where it's very specific to that case, and it's not creating necessarily the legal right everywhere to discriminate in the child welfare system. But I think a narrow loss isn't out of the question.
0: Mm. I mean, the Supreme Court really keeping me on the edge of my seat every single June. I'm like white knuckled (laughs) holding on for dear life, Um, which made me think of when I learned about the SCOTUS decision in your case. Um, I was at my office uh, in a newsroom. I was sitting next to my lesbian work wife, you know, like, But we had our little queer section of the newsroom. And, you know, just when that decision came down, literally just jumping up and everybody was applauding and screaming and like party time in the office. And sometimes I feel like I want to whine that progress feels too slow. And then I have these other times, like when I think about that day and just like, of course, I'm it wasn't this experience, but for an onlooker and someone getting these things via breaking news, feeling like the, you know, the flip of a switch, just something changes in that moment that that I just couldn't even wrap my head around how quickly it feels like that can happen, even though, of course, like this case happened over years and years and years and was, you know, a very uh, a big, big effort. But yeah, sometimes I, I want to whine. But then other times I'm like, whoa, my mind is completely blown at the pace of progress.
2: You're not alone in that. Alex. I I feel the same way. And, you know, for me personally, I still look at, you know, my experience from the moment we filed in federal district court to that Supreme Court decision was just shy of two years. And in the legal world and the Supreme Court world, that's lightning speed. So when I think of my experience in it, yes, it feels like it just happened like that. But then I have to remind myself, not really, because there were so many other things, so many other people who helped us along, Edie Windsor, um, Lawrence versus Texas, so many of those steps that helped, helped us move step by step up to that point where, as President Obama put it, feels like justice arrived like a thunderbolt. I still feel that way on June 26, 2015. And I have to admit, even though from the moment we filed, I knew we were right. I refused to think we would lose. Did I think we would end up in the Supreme Court? No, but (laughs) I just knew we were right. So I wasn't surprised in that, but it still feels so fast. Yeah, Like so many things changed. And then I also remind myself, yeah, it is fast because if we look at the fight, the Black community has been engaged in to be treated equally for their civil rights, for their yeah. ability to be part of We The People, it's been going on a lot longer yeah, yeah. Than, than it has for us. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think part of it is, you know, the LGBTQ plus community includes every other marginalized community yeah. out there. And I think that's part of what helped us move potentially a little more quickly because we had people from all groups who are part of our group Fighting for us, speaking up. So I really do credit the diversity within our within our community for helping that along.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think uh, I I really hear you on that point. And you said that you knew you were right from the jump. Do you consider yourself to be an optimist to keep on going after years and years pursuing this kind of work?
2: I am innately an optimist, and I think I've well, I know I've always been that way. But I also have to say. 21 years with my late husband, John, did nothing but reinforce that and make that stronger because John was always an optimist and he, he was one of those people who could always maintain this perfect sense of calm, no matter what was going on. And he helped me become even more of an optimist. So it has certainly helped me because there are always going to be setbacks, but I just remind myself look what happened with me personally and the experience I had. A lot of good can happen no matter what awful thing is going on, because there are few things I can think of worse than your loved one, your your spouse, your partner being diagnosed with ALS and dying. But an awful lot of good came out of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that is such a, a beautiful reflection on his legacy. So um, yeah, I feel like in these times, especially sometimes you just need to have that kind of reminder. And, you know, especially after the past year we've had, um, you know, of uh, the past four years we've had. And now it feels like there is, you know, uh, we're moving forward and fits and starts always. So as we start to wind down, when it comes to focusing on equality for LGBTQ families, you know, you mentioned some legislation. Um, what do you think people should be thinking about right now? What should they kind of start to get on their radar about this issue?
2: You know, definitely call your senators about the Equality Act. You know, that's one of the most urgent things right now because that is coming up in the Senate. And if we can get that act passed, what a huge change that would be for our community. So call your senators, do that. But also just continue to be aware of all the attacks against our community, but the attacks against every marginalized community. because. As I like to remind people, the attacks against us, the arguments that people use against our rights, oftentimes have been recycled. They're the same arguments used in past fights. Loving versus Virginia, a lot of the arguments against allowing them to marry were used against us. So be, be an advocate for every marginalized community, because personally, I don't feel right asking for my equality or equality for the LGBTQ plus community, if I'm not demanding the same thing for every other marginalized community. So always keep that keep that perspective that it isn't just us. We have to fight for each other and speak out on behalf of each other. So Equality Act, make sure you're always voting. I mean, I know that's a common refrain, but if you don't vote in local, state and federal elections, you're not involved and and you're not you're not saying these are the people who share my values and who respect and care about me and will fight for me you're letting others make that decision and you shouldn't so make sure you're always voting and i think the the biggest thing is just pay attention find an organization that you care about that's fighting for what you you believe in follow them because that's one of the easiest ways to to keep abreast of what's happening the things that are affecting our community or community that you care about.
0: Hmm. Um, I feel like those are all really great and uh, practical things that people can do. Um, On that point, your point about voting, one of the things I was thinking about is this past year, a a historical number of LGBTQ plus folk were voted into uh, all levels of offices across the country. And I feel like one other way to fight for LGBTQ plus people is when you get to vote you actually get people who represent the needs of your community and have lived through these experiences too
2: there's nothing more powerful than having someone from your community at that table where those decisions are being made absolutely i know for me personally i love being able to vote for someone from my community because it's just that feeling of i know they're going to be fighting for the things i care about the things that matter to me so absolutely what what a joy that is and You know, I look at the Biden administration, you know, we have Pete in transportation. We, you know, hopefully Dr. Rachel Levine will be confirmed. That would be amazing to have the first transgender person confirmed by the Senate. And so many of the other people, positions that President Biden has filled with members of our community, that has such an impact on our ability to really live life on a more equal basis, to be seen, to be represented. So that's, we can't underestimate the importance of that.
0: Well, where can folks find family equality and the other work that you're doing? And um, where can I find Equality Vines? You know,
2: (laughs) (laughs) familyequality.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, equalityvines.com
0: and noted also- <laughs> asking for a friend aka myself you know
2: <laughs> and and i i finally got around to having my own website so obergefell.com you can keep keep abreast of things i've been doing reach me if you need to so but definitely um, check out family equality you know it the organization's doing such important work for our community and in fact on april 22nd we have our gala Um, Looking Out, Working Together for LGBTQ Plus Families. So if you're free on April 22nd, you can check that out on our website as well. Come join us for storytelling, performers, and a lot of fun.
0: Excellent. Well, Jim, it was such a delight and an honor getting to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me.
2: Alex, it was fantastic. Thanks for having me on.
0: Each week after we talk about the news, I like to leave you with a story that's bringing me joy, or in this case, hope. This is a story to bookend the conversation we had earlier about anti-trans bills. As I've mentioned before, there are over 30 being proposed in state legislatures that aim to ban trans girls from playing school sports, and the White House is saying not on their watch. The White House has warned states considering these bills that they are illegal under federal law. Press Secretary Jen Psaki said that, quote, the president believes that trans rights are human rights and that no one should be discriminated on the basis of sex. Not only is this the law of the land, It's his own deeply held view. It's just a breath of fresh air to hear that the White House staunchly backs transgender rights and is willing to acknowledge the dignity of trans people. This should be the minimum stance that all legislators take. But after the past four years, and as the Trump family still actively touts dangerous myths about trans people, it's heartening to know that the White House is taking this position, that it is clear and states that are hoping to pass these reprehensible bills are on notice. Please make sure to support the LGBTQ Nation podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review our show right now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Five stars, please. And check out LGBTQ Nation every day at www.lgbtqnation.com. LGBTQ Nation has been a joint production between Forever Dog and Q Digital. LGBTQ Nation is hosted by Alex Berg, produced by Andrew McGuire, engineered by Katrina Henning, music by Gabe Lopez, executive produced by Joe Cilio, Scott Gatz, John Halbach, Bill Browning, and Melissa D. Mons. Forever! <laughs>